Hi everybody, this is Ben, and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this podcast is not professional medical advice. The podcast is a personal project and does not represent the views of my medical school. Welcome back. This is episode 28, and I'm wrapping up week 21, week 31 of medical school. We're 60% through our musculoskeletal system block, and it's kind of flown by and also felt like just one super, super long day at the same time. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but we are learning a lot. Um, I got out into the world this week, and I saw some patients at a senior care center, and I actually got to try some physical exam uh, practice and um, like pressing on people's abdomens and listening to their hearts and lungs. That was great. And I got to look into somebody's ears. Uh, My own musculoskeletal system has been kind of acting up a bit. I I think I have kind of a pinched nerve in my uh, upper back or my neck. And so I've been seeing some doctors at my own medical school for that. And I want to talk a little bit about um, nerve pain in general. And lastly, lastly, maybe a question from last week that I got an email. Okay, let's get to it. So this senior care center that I went to, um, I was shadowing the physician assistant there, and it's an alternative to a nursing home for people who want to stay living independently at home. So the, the participants, as they're called, are people who are eligible for Medicaid and Medicare, So they're over 55 and also eligible for Medicaid. And they also are eligible to be in a nursing home facility, maybe because of some disability or something. And basically, instead of going to a nursing home, Medicaid pays this organization a lump sum per patient per year to completely take care of the health needs of the, um, I'm supposed to say participant instead of patient, to completely take care of the health needs of the participant for the whole year, including any hospitalizations, all their prescription meds, physician visits, nurse visits, social work, um, occupational therapy, all of those. So the reason that this kind of program exists is that most people say that they would prefer to stay at home and out of nursing homes and hospitals as they age. And so, um, so the question is, how do you do that? And what kind of help do you need to give people so that they can live at home um, successfully? So they send meals to their houses. Um, They have transportation to bring participants to the mixed-use facility for socializing, bingo, um, healthcare visits. And they have their own group of doctors and nurses and social workers and physician assistants, occupational and physical therapists, their own drivers who deliver medications and equipment like walkers and oxygen machines. So the whole team works together to um, discuss every patient and to try to cover all their health needs. And the key to all this is that it only works if they can keep the costs down by doing most everything in-house. So... Um, The most expensive thing is when one of the participants gets sick all of a sudden and goes to the emergency department and then gets admitted to the hospital because then that big hospital bill, well, it doesn't go to the participant. It goes to the the PACE organization. 
So you can imagine that a pandemic like we're experiencing could put a lot of strain on an organization where uh, that that uses this model because you know the organization has all the risk if there's a big medical bill that comes out. I got to observe some patient care visits with the physician assistant. Both of them that I got to observe um, really stuck with me. Um, one, because I got to perform a lot of physical exam maneuvers and uh, the patient was really friendly and encouraging and the physician assistant was helpful too and, and was giving me sort of a Socratic method of what I would be looking for in the, in the patient. And then in the second visit, um, the, pa- the patient himself was mostly not talking too much and it was his caregiver who was talking more and she was describing um, he had had a fall and she was describing all of the way that their life works and how the medication gets given and gosh it just gave me a lot of respect for the duties of these of the caregivers she cleans with cleans and helps them with the toilet dressing feeding it sounded really difficult um, but then the flip side is that there's a lot of comfort in being at home with your loved ones for both the person receiving the care and the caregiver. I wanted to talk a little bit about nerve pain and pinched nerves, um, partly because I was actually experiencing some of this this week. But uh, nerve pain, there, there are a lot of ways you can get nerve pain. And part of what nerves do is bring information from the body to the brain. That's the sensory function. And then the other part is the motor function which is to have a signal in the brain causing an effect in the body, which could be like waving or squeezing your fingers or chewing or something like that, or your heartbeat. So the sensory nerves and the motor nerves run alongside each other in big groups and bundles of nerves that all go to the same area. For instance, all the nerves that flex your pinky and your ring finger, and then the sensory nerves for those fingers run in a bundle just behind your elbows called the ulnar nerve, aka the funny bone. So if that gets pinched, as sometimes happens when I'm watching a TV show in bed, it makes my arm fall asleep, pins and needles, but I also can't really move those fingers. And it's just the nerve being compressed temporarily and just frizzling out. Uh, When nerves get pinched at the spot where they leave the spine, that's called a radiculopathy. A common one is is sciatica, which happens at the very last vertebrae before your your sacrum and tailbone and um, a change to the structures down there. Like if you have a disc herniation, it can cause the vertebrae to press down on the sciatic nerve. And just like the funny bone, the pain or numbness or tingling doesn't stay where the compression happens. Um, It feels like it's shooting all the way down your leg. So one fascinating thing is that there are nerves sending signals back to the brain about things in our body that we never are consciously aware of. For example, there are nerves that sense carbon dioxide levels in our blood and tell our brain to exhale to get rid of the carbon dioxide. These unfelt signals that are happening in your body, they travel alongside normal sensory signals like pain. And sometimes your brain will um, interpret them together as pain. One example is in a heart attack. Um, the, the reason that people get pain in their arms when they're having a heart attack is because the signals that come from the heart when you have an artery blockage, they get lumped together with the same 
nerve bundles that go to your arm that are sensing pain. And so your brain kind of just says, okay, you're either feeling pressure in your chest or arm pain. And so it just has both of those signals kind of go at the same time. And that's what's called referred pain. And so we're learning about these pathways that nerves take so that when someone comes in and says that, you know, their, their right side hurts, we'll know that it could be a pain or danger signal from the patient's appendix, which is getting lumped together with nerves on the right side of the body. And then, um, and it presents as right flank pain, but it's actually, um, pain and inflammation from the appendix. So it's a really cool topic and it should be pretty useful to know about. That's one of the reasons why we have to study the cadavers in the anatomy lab to learn about the way that the nerves branch and diverge and converge in the body. I have noticed that recently when I'm going to the doctor, the doctors really perk up when I say that I'm applying to medical school or now that I'm in medical school, um, you know, when I tell them that they get much more talkative, even this very gloomy doctor that I visited back in Las Vegas, his whole demeanor brightened when I told him that I was applying to medical school. I, I almost didn't cause I was worried that he would sort of just tell me it was a terrible idea and that I shouldn't try to become a doctor. But yeah, his whole face brightened up and he started chatting with me and talking about medical school and giving me advice for books to buy. Um, it's just really interesting. I don't know exactly what it is, but I guess it brings people back to maybe why they wanted to become a doctor in the first place and it gets them excited. I decided to enroll as a patient with my medical school's clinic when I started school. Um, mostly they accepted my insurance and I thought that, you know, the people who I was trusting to teach me about medicine would probably uphold the highest values of being doctors themselves. The residents um, have been really great. And the attending doctors have been and really helpful too. The thing that's weird about this situation is that any of the doctors at the internal medicine clinic could be in the position of supervising me when I'm in my third or fourth year at school. And that poses a bit of a risk of a conflict of interest. For example, just hypothetically, if one of my medical issues was attention deficit disorder that was being treated by doctors at my university's internal medicine department. Well, suppose I go to do my rotation, the very same doctors are evaluating my performance in the classroom or on the wards. Uh, those same doctors are treating me for ADHD. They might be inclined to give me better grades as an encouragement, or even, you know, to make them feel better that, that maybe the medication and the treatments are working or paradoxically, maybe give me worse grades for some reason, who knows? But the problem is that these types of conflicts could arise if I'm being graded by the same people who are treating me as a patient. The solution is that anyone who's my actual doctor will not be allowed to grade me or write my evaluations. So they have a, they have a method for solving the problem, but it may create some complexity in the future. So I'll have to figure that out as I go along. But so far, I'm really happy having the residents in my university's internal medicine program treating me. The last thing was a quick question. I mentioned a week, a week or two ago that I got to practice some surgical procedures with an orthopedic surgeon in a simulation setting. B 
being left-handed, I was a little bit nervous about whether there would be sort of a difficult maneuver that I wouldn't be able to do because I'm left-handed. It turns out that scissors, it's not fun to use right-handed scissors if you're left-handed because basically the natural movement of your hands is to sort of push your thumb away and to pull your fingers in even as you're closing the scissors. If you do that with your left hand, you're pushing the blades of the scissors away from each other which means they're not going to be very effective as they're supposed to pass really close to each other and then cut the paper. There are lefty surgical scissors. There's also another tool called a needle driver, which you basically, it's like a mini pliers that grabs um, a surgical needle. It also has a, a little ratchet thing that, that locks it shut. And to undo it, you have to do this move and it's set up for righties. So if you want to be a, a left-handed surgeon, there's a good chance that you should get your own pair of lefty scissors and lefty needle drivers. That's going to do it for this week. We talked about the uh, PACE model of all-inclusive care for the elderly and a little bit about pinched nerves and referred nerve pain and, and uh, seeing a doctor at my own medical school. Thanks for listening. The intro and outro music was by David Funkhauser. And if you have any questions, please email me at b-r-o-o-t at fastmail.com. Have a great week.